Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm very pleased to say I think we have a stellar panel tonight and I'm going to just begin by introducing those people. Um, We have from Denmark, Mia Elisa Kierkegaard, who I first encountered, I believe, in 1999, when she ran away from the office of Zaha Hadid in terror and came came to our front door at FET, where she, she worked as an intern. It was very clear from that moment onwards that she was never going to be an architect because she was really an artist. And Mia has uh, a practice which is based in Copenhagen, although she exhibits quite a lot in the United States. And um, she studied both architecture and uh, and fine art here. So she did uh, architecture, I think, starting in Aarhus, and then she did uh, her postgraduate architecture course at the Bartlett before going to uh, Central St. Martins to do a fine art degree. And uh, very excitingly, she has a fantastic sounding exhibition in Venezuela next week, in a very remote part of uh, Venezuela. Amir uh, is of interest for this discussion because she still has kind of architecture as a, a, a big part of the subject matter in, in her work, which is painting and installation, and you'll see a little bit about that uh, this evening. Pablo Bronstein, who I'm extremely pleased to is joining us, um, is one of the, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, rising stars of the British art world. He um, studied also at uh, Central St. Martins, uh, and the Slade, and at Goldsmiths. And uh, very recently, I think in 2013, had a major exhibition called Sketches for Regency Living at the ICA. And last year did a very large project uh, at Chatsworth House called the Treasures of Chatsworth, which was also uh, combined with something at uh, Nottingham Contemporary. And uh, very excitingly, he is the artist who has been selected to do this year's Duveen Commission at Tate Britain, which I believe opens uh, next month. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll all be uh, desperate to go and see it. And um, Pablo's of interest to me because a lot of his work looks a lot like architecture. He does these most amazing drawings that uh, are reminiscent of the kind of uh, 18th century French architects like Ledoux, but he also mixes this up with performance. He also builds structures. And so he's very interesting from the point of view of this discussion because he's almost kind of an artist doing architecture, but he may well dispute that, we will, we will find out. And following Pablo, we have um, Maria Lisa, I said I would pronounce this correctly, Lisa Gorskia from uh, Assemble, who I'm, I'm sure you all know were the recipients of the 2015 Turner Prize. 
something of a surprise because Assemble are not, officially at least, well they are now, um, artists. And they won the Turner Prize for their project called um, Granby Four Streets, which is a kind of uh, community-driven project, would that be fair to say, uh, in Liverpool, involving local residents, but using techniques that um, some people in the art world might call relational aesthetics, and something in common with uh, an artist like Theasta Gates, who's doing similar things in the United States. But basically, this is a, about uh, the regeneration of a deprived part of the city. And so I guess it would be also fair to say that the winning of the Turner Prize was somewhat controversial because um, I guess there are some people in the art world who are slightly uncomfortable with the idea of, some, of, of a practice that is really a, a, probably more geared towards an, a kind of architectural view of the world winning the UK's most uh, prestigious art prize. Then, finally, and then I'll get on to, to me, I won't say much about me, we are very privileged to have uh, Tamsin Dillon, who uh, is a curator, and I, I wanted Tamsin to speak at the end because I thought she might be in a position to sum up the position uh, following everybody else's uh, talk. And uh, Tamsin is probably best known for her work as the curator and director of Art on the Underground. You, Everybody in this room will have seen uh, a lot of the work that Tamsin has curated and commissioned. Uh, she left that role uh, in 2014 and is now working on the uh, 14 to 18 Now project, which is a series of art commissions across the country that commemorate uh, the First World War. And she is also heavily involved with the King's Cross Partnership and the commissioning uh, of art projects in relation to the new development <coughs> at King's Cross. I wanted to say a little bit about why we should be doing this. And I'm also going to show in a little while just a couple of projects. I'm going to be quite brief here. But I'm interested in the fact that we have a an exhibition which is called uh, Maverick Architects, uh, which this event is in connection with. And the thing about that is that the word maverick, particularly when it is related to architects, is a sort of slightly loaded term. On the one hand, it's acknowledging a kind of, um, if you like, sort of free-thinking individuality, but it's also slightly an insult. If you're a maverick, you're someone who perhaps should not be taken too seriously, or at least your ideas. I have no claim that anybody should take me seriously at all, by the way, but um, there is a, a kind of another side to that expression. And I think it's very, very particular when it comes to architecture, because I think it suggests that you're doing something as an architect which is beyond the rational, that's engaging in a certain kind of frivolity, the frivolity of aesthetics or the frivolity of ideas that have nothing to do with structure or function. 
So perhaps the claim about these architects who are in this exhibition is that in some way they have stepped over the boundary, at least partially, into the world of art because the things that make them maverick are the things that are nothing to do with architecture in terms of what, what their work is about. So there's that. Then there is my own particular oscillation, uh, my personal oscillation between the worlds of art and architecture. In fact, my practice, which is in the show, or my former practice, um, always had at least a toe dipped in the world of fine art. And I think one of the reasons that the work of Fat was both loathed and loved had something to do with the fact that it didn't quite fit into traditional definitions of architecture. But there was also something going on in terms of the interest that artists seem to have in architecture as subject matter. And there is also an increasing tendency, because architecture has become so emasculated by the kind of neoliberal method of property development where you know, architecture has become a kind of financial risk management in which aesthetics play very, very little, a very, very small part. There is an increasing tendency to invite artists in, if you like, to add a sprinkling of aesthetic sensibility or poetic sensibility or narrative or the dreaded term place-making, um, which you know is, has become meaningless once developers start using. So there's this sort of creeping of artists into the world of architecture, and there's a creeping of architects like me into the world of art and like assemble into the world of art. And I began to think, well, in the 21st century, is there really a difference between an architect and an artist? What is it that distinguishes those uh, kinds of practice? Is it something to do with the means of practice? Is it something to do with the product? Is it something to do with the process? Is it something to do with the fact that architecture is a, a profession that is legally recognised? You can't call yourself an architect unless you have certain qualifications. But as Joseph Boyce once told us, everyone can become an artist, or everyone can be an artist. So are there differences? And I wonder, is it something to do with how you make work, artists perhaps more likely to be directly working on a piece of work which is the thing that they're making, architects working on something that is a projection towards something else, they're working on a drawing which isn't the building, it's a, it's a description of a building that's made by some, somebody else. Do the roles of functionality, do the issues of cost, do the issues of um, the kind of social context, how do they affect our perception of what art and architecture might be? Uh, is it different? Should, should art have any kind of social content, for example? So I was interested in all of those um, 
kind of questions. And the idea that perhaps historically that um, people were much more comfortable with the idea that artists and architects might be the same people. So very famous figures like uh, Michelangelo, like Bernini, were very, very obviously um, architects, painters, and sculptors, and you could say that the the same kind of philosophical drive that uh, they were pursuing informed all of those disciplines equally. And then some of the most famous architects of the 20th century, perhaps those architects who would have the greatest claim to say that they were artists, people like Le Corbusier, Mies van der Rohe, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, famously didn't train as architects at all. Um, they, they, they would not uh, qualify for membership of the RIBA. So one of the things that seems to me to be um, interesting is that this distinction is quite a recent thing that we we see these two things as separate. And I suppose the final question, before I just show a couple of slides to elucidate my thinking a little bit uh, by example, is in the 21st century, when we have um, the coming of virtual reality, the internet of things where potentially anybody can design something in their bedroom and have it, have it printed out somewhere, <clears throat> where we have all of these new technologies that are rapidly going to change our, our lives, do these distinctions even matter anymore? Can we all be architects, artists, sculptors, game designers, and do those distinctions make any difference? But I'd just like to show very quickly, if I can have my slides off, just, just to put this in a bit of context. Um, this is FAT's first ever project, and the project was really driven as a kind of art project. It was 200 um, artworks which were exhibited in bus shelters across London. And what's kind of interesting to me about this is that on the one hand it's an art, it's a kind of, it's a curatorial project. It's about Putting, putting work that one might normally find in a gallery into the context of the street, addressing a very different kind of audience. But what I always felt was that it was also a work of architecture, albeit using one that's an existing structure, uh, a bus shelter. But it was a gallery. And by putting something called art into this, you changed the function of that space, at least partially. And so... I think right from the very beginning, Fat was interested in the relationship between art and architecture. And then when we eventually got somebody to commission us to do a building, and that person who commissioned us to do the building was me, because nobody else would give us <laughs> a project to do at this time. As much as architectural things, we were thinking about things like this, which is... Um, as you probably recognise, uh, Jasper John's, one of Jasper John's flag uh, paintings. And uh, the kind of issues that this thing raises, you know, the, the relationship between actuality and representation, the um, use of superimposition to give an um, impression of flatness, um, 
the ambiguity between whether it's a kind of object or a surface, the use of a, of a potent, highly potent symbol, this painting having been made in the, in the middle of the Cold War at, at its coldest, um, were the things that were sort of interesting me when I designed this, which is a house um, in Hackney. And, you know, the same kind of issues of superimposition of use of a potent symbol, in this case the symbol of a house, of doing things you're not supposed to do in architecture, which is stick things on the front of other things. So this is, a, a if you guess, I, I guess, a sign for a house stuck onto a house to tell you it's a house um, is, kind of, is kind of the idea. And how, from certain angles, that flatness um, and the picture, the picture on the right, that the sort of flatness is accentuated, and how on the in the middle you get a very strong sense of the volumetric qualities of the house with this flatness kind of stuck on in what architects would describe as a very superficial way. And of course, this caused a great deal <coughs> of upset in the architectural profession. Architects tend to be people who get upset very easily. <laughs> Um, and then doing something that is, is much more difficult to do in the world of architecture, which is to understand something that is profoundly architectural, which is to draw a line in space, which is what architects do all the time and perhaps don't think about enough. You know, architects will draw something and it will be the difference between whether something's private property or public space, or it's the difference between a place where you go for a poo or a place where you sleep and have sex. And, you know, these places are named in a way that's kind of trying to discourage um, um, one form of activity or uh, encourage other kinds of activity, and it's to do with how drawing a line. So this is my project, which was at New Quebec Street. It was called My Dreams of Levitation. What it did was it remade the existing rooms of this uh, house and uh, displaced them by raising them off the ground and shifting them over so that you got a kind of shifted ghost house of the spaces that were, uh, that, that were created by these lines, and the lines are represented by skirting boards and architraves, exact copies of uh, what, what was there. And what's interesting about this is it changes the way you occupy this room. Your, that, that condition of boundary that's described by a line becomes something that you actually come into physical contact with, and it, and it interrupts your egress through the space. Um, and I guess it was trying to bring out the quality, the, the, the physicality of boundaries, of what they actually mean, of how they organise the way that we occupy this, this um, entity called space. And, you know, what's kind of interesting about it, I guess, is from certain angles it becomes like a sort of minimalist abstract sculpture, even though it's a copy of, uh, just a copy of the room. And in other instances, it becomes like oh, almost sort of Magritte-like um, 
slightly strange object hanging so hanging in the room. So that this object takes on different qualities as you as you move around it. But I think the most important thing about it for me was this drawing the architectural line in space in a way that made the occupant encounter it very directly. And of course, that would be a very difficult thing to do if you were doing something called architecture, even though it's clearly a very sort of spatial thing. And that I am going to finish at that point. Invite Mia Elise Kiergaard to come up. Thank you so much for inviting me here to London. I'm very happy to be here. Um, I started painting when I was 15 and uh, found out that I wanted to be an artist. Um, however, I found myself in architecture school uh, doing one semester after the other and, and actually really loving it and believing that when I graduated, I could just go out into the art world and become an artist. But, um, and, and I started this collaboration afterwards, inspired by FAT, <laughs> amongst others, but um, of, uh, it, it was called Laboratory, Laboratorium in Danish, for art, architecture, and design. And what I found was that the design world was pretty happy and the architecture world welcomed us in too. We got grants from those parts of the Arts Council and the art world was so not interested. So um, we worked for about four years and, uh, and at one point I ended up having this thought to myself, um, remembering my dream about becoming an artist and I had all the time, uh, next to the architectural studies, next to the collaboration, been working half-time in my uh, painting studio and uh, actually been able to live from painting since I was 23 or something like that. And I felt like I was throwing it all out in a way um, and, uh, and compromising myself. And uh, I, I found that getting into the art world was seemed impossible for me. Nobody wanted to show my work. Uh, so I decided that uh, I had to go back to school and uh, do an MFA. Uh, and um, I think I needed that too. So uh, looking back now. But uh, my work consists of paintings, um, uh, constructions, and, uh, um, and I want to show you uh, quickly some examples. Um, I made these rules up for myself that I could only paint uh, man-made machines, uh, which means that it was like ships or factories or um, architecture that would be kind of fantastic looking, but there would be not a bolt or a, a, a piece of wood that wouldn't be there for a reason. Um, <coughs> And, uh, and I also liked that they were kind of like that the, the purpose of the building were kind of not there anymore. So you had this fantastic machinery going in all direction and looking marvelous, but also being dystopian, uh, or these, these uh, images of an idea that wasn't lasting or that wasn't good enough. Um, and another thing was that they couldn't, I couldn't reveal what was underneath them, like the final base of the building. Uh, I, I wouldn't 
go into, kind of. Uh, and of course, they're very painterly and gestural, and that's something that I think is something in my temper. Um, so I want to show you a few of my uh, installation work. Um, this is a folding floor. Uh, I did the model in, in cardboard, and then doing it in planks was kind of very different. Um, a bridge at Fanelli's in New York on the verge of collapse, and that's another thing that I'm constantly uh, walking around the theme of when something is either just holding it together uh, or actually will it collapse or will it stay for another hundred years. Um, and I also find that in human beings it's, it's interesting to like just this, that second. This is a mapping project I did um, traveling in the footsteps of a Danish writer uh, and a ship named after the Danish writer. So the man and the ship of the same name going out from the island I grew up at. And uh, I tracked the writer down for free, tried to go in the footsteps and to north to Canada and different places and found um, a lot of traces for him. And then I also searched for the ship that I actually I sailed uh, for 11 years as a child and found, uh, af and when I found it, I hadn't seen it for 23 years. So this is um, an exhibition space in Copenhagen uh, called Nikolai Church, and uh, this is another room. You can see how the architectural code models is suddenly coming into the language, but meaning something completely different. Um, finding the ship for me was um, <coughs> fantastic. I've been sleeping in this bed of the ship for so many times, and I knew all the sounds of the water just on the edge of 10 centimeters away from my head. And, uh, and I came to on a Fraser Gallery in LA and saw that the um, uh, ceiling was curving a little bit like the ship did. And then she had a skylight up there. And um, what I found when Libby is sleeping in the ship again after 23 years was that the new owner had put uh, a little skylight in. And I tried to get up under the roof and evoke that this is the entrance. Um, evoke that little skylight up there and borrow the sheet, sheets from the ship to um, yeah, get that feeling. And this is a, f a drawing my father did of the ship, so my Perth birth was like far left. This is a free uh, project <coughs> that I have done for my next show in Venezuela at a small museum there. Uh, I've started looking at modern ruins in Venezuela and uh, was kind of taken by how a shopping center or a bank building that was not finished is getting occupied immediately um, or, and, and they started looking at fabric uh, how people would finish a building with fabric or with boards or with bricks very rough I want to end on a note because I, I kind of uh, has been touching a little bit back to architecture. Last year I got this um, a commission for making a bike and pedestrian street in the harbor of the city of Holbeck. This is how the Holbeck looked in the 40s, 30s or 40s, uh, with a very alive harbor and uh, that's how the city came along. This is how it looks today. 
and the picture is taken from the pedestrian street looking down at the side of the place that the bridge is going to go over um, down there and uh, I just uh, I've, I've been doing it in like as an artist and then I've had some architects helping me uh, solve all the problems that I don't know anything about um, <coughs> so this is kind of the view that you would get from that point up in the city. So there's like 10 pillars uh, and, uh, and some uh, levels going down to <coughs> the water with one floating up and down and the, uh, the, the edge of the harbor is doing like little amphitheater. So I hope that um, this will make like small concerts and, and traditions in, in that small city that people will go there and use the space um, the box uh, is a, a shelter box with uh, glass in the end and you can go in and, and uh, yeah, knowing the Danish weather, I think that's going to be uh, a pause in, in a walk in the city. Um, between the, there is, it's divided into two, the bike go here and the walking go there. In between there, there is a gap and I put in uh, like a net that you see in the tip of a ship. Uh, so you can lie down there as a hammock uh, just above the water. So I think I want to end on the note saying that I don't think I, if, if I had been an artist I would probably not have, have made the bridge with ten pillars because that's not very fine uh, uh, because you might be able to do it with three. So to overdo it like that in order to make the image um, or, or make a visual image masks, I think is very unarchitectural like uh, some some of course would do it but uh, but I think that could distinguish a little bit like the role of the artist or the architect my name is Pablo Bronstein I, I think I've always drawn buildings uh, I drew them as a child, compulsively, um, I won a prize when I was six uh, for this drawing called uh, King Aiti's Palace, which was a meticulously detailed kind of Turkish-Russian fantasia. Uh, and as a result of drawing and drawing drawing buildings with enormous detail, uh, my parents assumed that I wanted to be an architect, and I sort of nodded. Um, and that sort of, you know, sets a train in motion for you know, UCAS applications <laughs> 10 years later. Um, now, the sort of, the problem with, with that is that my idea of architecture really was one of drawing whatever building I wanted to draw and whichever style and, you know, that was it. Maybe also reading the world of interiors. Um, and so I um, got to the Bartlett uh, and lasted a month or two, and then dropped out. I was absolutely miserable. Um, I think that there was a kind of moment it, during a sort of a lecture about load-bearing properties of cement. Oh, fuck knows what. I was like, <laughs> no. Um, so I, 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 I dropped out and did art school um, with the realization that I'd always actually wanted to. That what I had been doing was art, without realizing it. Um, so, I mean, in a way, it's, it's, quite hard to, it's quite hard to differentiate. There are some very complicated arguments to do with why something is art 
and why something is architecture. There are differences, I think. Um, but in the art post-Duchampian world, the differences, I think, are kind of... Um, uh, well, they're, they're institutional. They're contextual. Um, they have to do with conversations and commissions and who does the commissioning and for what reasons and what institution enshrines it and for what reason. Um, and so um, why, why or whether something looks like one thing or another is in a way pretty immaterial. Uh, this is um, a large building with courtyard. Um, the, the, uh, the architecture world um, has published my work on a number of occasions. Um, I don't know why it's published it. Um, it clearly finds something or other that is temporarily relevant to it. I have no long-term commitment to the architecture world. I may not be around in the architecture world you know, tomorrow. I'm entirely dependent on the interest of a section of the architecture world for even being invited to be here. Um, so we shall see. Um, I, th I think that, in a way, the kind of um, the, the role that I might play within the architecture world is one of speaking the unspeakable, similarly to the way that fashion architecture taste brought in postmodern architecture revival when postmodern architects were still building, you know, provincial housing estates, um, is, you know, I, I think that I was deemed to be sort of being naughty in, in the early 2000s when I was talking about postmodern architecture and it was very unfashionable. Large building with courtyard. This is a silver temple um, that housed silverware from the Chatsworth collection. This is at Nottingham Contemporary. This is it from the back. Banana-coloured staircase. Uh, this is a uh, beach hut in the form of a lighthouse in the style of Nicholas Hawksmoor. It's been aggressively styled for a Dazeen photo shoot with a pair of chavs and a pit bull, so... <laughs> in a way, it's quite, it's quite glad, I'm quite glad that they have styled it like that because um, unlike, I mean, unlike the majority of relational aesthetics, um, present company excluded, um, the, the majority of um, people looking at this will actually genuinely not be upper-middle-class white people. Um, so, um, I mean, I don't know if it, how aware you are of, of, of a large and complicated debate that took place in the art world about who it was that was eating in these, you know, Rikrit, uh, Trevenesia soup kitchens and so on, but essentially it's highly symbolic and takes place within a very constructed environment. Uh, this is a sort of... It, it's a show about... Alberti in Florence in the style of a provincial show about Alberti. Uh, and this is a uh, series of images of a cleaned-up Chatsworth house that, that sort of float around uh, a display of Chatsworth furniture uh, that took place in Nottingham Contemporary. Fundamentally, I think all architecture responds to a brief, even if it's a self-generated one. By the standards of the art world, an architecture brief feels unbelievably leaden and heavy. It's inconceivable that we have a, a complex set of instructions imposed on us from someone else that tells you essentially how big or small it's going to be. I mean, the conversations that an artist might have with a curator are 
so loose, so free, that I, 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 I don't think that that's apparent. I mean, for, an, for a curator very often to even specify what sort of project might even happen to an artist is a rare thing. I, might, I mean, you'll probably confirm this later or deny it. <laughs> um, uh, so, so, so from the art world, an architecture brief is completely solid, uh, a kind of immovable object. Um, this thing that you've got to, that architects have to somehow overcome and deal with and so on. And, it's, and this brief for architects delineates the project and it's also how you measure its success, whether the client is happy or not. And this might equally apply to self-generated briefs. Um, there is a sense of needing improvement um, within architecture. It's very rare that architecture deliberately tries to do a bad job. It might try to be tasteless, but it's always essentially an improvement or tries to be. Um, so um, the context of the art world means that um, though the work might appear architectural, essentially there is no brief. We don't really function with one. Um, uh, certainly not the way that it's um, known in the design profession. Um, so when making the, an, an artwork that has the sort of uh, when we're making an artwork that has the characteristics of design, um, uh, um, I, I kind of work with a very, very false brief um, that comes uh, after an initial unspoken contract with the institution. And this is, this is quite important because it means that my brief is essentially part of the artwork and not every artist works in this way. So whether I'm working with the brief does not impact on the meaning of, of artists generally within the institution. So um, uh, let's have a look. Um, a brief can be brought in, but only as an aid to making work, um, and only freely as an element in the work. And this is 99% of the time that artists bring in their own briefs. It, it is as a self-imposition rather than as something that is meticulously worked out. Um, uh, there are times when artists are asked to do something very, very particular by, by an institution. Um, and in these cases, the boundaries become slightly more confused uh, as the artist is a kind of service provider. Now, um, I think that when an artist designs, they are more as a service provider or an actor than designing as a designer or an architect. Um, because, in a way, artistic practice is so wide-ranging um, that the request of an artist... Um, by an institution to design a chair doesn't really impact on the meaning of art in a way. It, that's already been taken care of. Um, and the relationship of the institution to a traditional painter isn't touched by whether an artist is asked to design a chair or not. Um, so uh, when a, an institution asks an artist to, say, design a chair, um, this is to demonstrate the wide-ranging diversity of practices. Um, sometimes, of course, there might be a use for the chairs, but it's overall the reason why an artist is there designing a chair is to demonstrate diversity of approach, which in its turn undermines the fact that, um, you know, the fact that there is a brief. So uh, there might be a particular brief in a particular case, but this is not something that is ongoing. It is a unique one-off, and it's part of the conceptual meaning of the artwork. Right, that's it. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks for having me here. We're not actually architects. We're not allowed to call ourselves architects because we're not part of the RBA and no one's really finished their degree. Um, and we never really thought of ourselves as artists. We never really described ourselves as anything particular, to be honest. Um, we just started working on projects uh, in our free time because, um, so we studied architecture, a lot of us did, but some of us didn't, um, kind of two people, three people didn't. Um, and whilst kind of, you know, doing kind of toilet extensions in someone else's office, we got a bit bored. Um, so we decided to, to do something with our hands, you know, just make a project. Um, so our first project was um, turning a kind of empty petrol station into a cinema. You know, it's quite architectural, um, but it was a self-initiated brief. Um, and the idea was just to, to have fun, basically. Um, so we saw this petrol station, we had a few ideas about what we want to do there. Uh, and then we settled on working <coughs> cinema. And we got lots of friends involved, and we didn't really, we didn't have a name, we didn't have a, we, did, we didn't have a, anything really, we just um, <laughs> had some people who had some time, um, and we started making, uh, kind of, we had meetings in the pub, and had a few um, sketches, um, making kind of cinema chairs, and curtains, and uh, popcorn stands, and kind of outfits, and just like playing around designing kind of everything from the kind of the popcorn machine to to the actual um, cinema space um, and you know it was just really it's just basically for fun really um, and we didn't really call it anything um, it was <coughs> a thing um, and so the success of the project was if people bought tickets or not um, and so when um, you're watching the film in this um, space um, at the end 12 of us would go around pull the kind of uh, cords up um, and open the curtains up and you'll be up, up in the street again. <coughs> so it was all about um, just experimenting what, with what a spaces could be. Um, and I guess since then we've grown into more kind of traditional forms of practice whilst maintaining some uh, alternative approaches. Um, and I think the reason we've been able to continue is because we managed to find a really cheap space, um, which is in a kind of... Uh, industrial, <coughs> undergoing residential area near Stratford. Um, and again, you know, we were still having other jobs. Some people were working in a market, some people were working in architecture practice, some people were, um, I don't know, teaching. Um, and it was just kind of in our free time, we, um, we found this uh, warehouse and gradually started to convert it into a space where we could be. So we had a good, really good deal with um, the LDC that in return for, um, for the space we would put like community <coughs> events, you know, uh, make it a happening place. <laughs> and um, so it took a while, you know, it took us months to really like get rid of some of the trash. And um, it, was a, it was a sign makers company who went bust and so they had to leave the building. So we kind of got in. Um, and the first kind of iteration of that space was um, kind of events, cinema space and the cafe and kind of our office at the back. Um, and we, we decided to make pizza because we thought that we needed some food. Um, there's not much stuff going on in the area. And for some reason, we thought it was going to make us money, but it really didn't. <laughs> uh, it was really good pizza. Uh, it was very good. But um, it was in the middle of Stratford, so it's not like Dalston where you can sell a 1,000 pizzas a day. Um, so we lost a lot of money. But um, it was fun. Um, and we ran some workshops. Um, and then we realised that we need to kind of be a bit more serious and try and actually try and make some money, um, and more and more started to kind of do assemble projects as a full-time thing. And um, so then we kind of rearranged the space again and turned it more into a workspace, and we built a new building. Um, 
and we also got lots of artists and uh, kind of sculptors and uh, pro designers and uh, makers, as they call them, uh, to come and share the space with us to kind of um, share the rent, but also to kind of uh, share facilities like workshops and <coughs> learn new skills and all that stuff. So, um, and we kind of have these show and tell events where we look at different people's work. Um, they happen about once a year, but <laughs> you know we still like to talk about it. Um, and then we also have the outdoor space, um, the yard, which has become you know really incredible resource. Because um, if you have a normal architecture office, you you know you're kind of stuck to to the desk. But we had a lot of space where we could make it was a mess, and it was in the middle of nowhere, so no one really cared. So we make you know took some uh, kind of debris from the demolition sites next door and made some stuff with it. Um, and some of it turned into projects, some didn't. And then we made some uh, tiles, which we then used for a facade uh, of a building, this one. Um, and then, yet yeah, again, kind <coughs> of inviting people to share lo uh, space with us, so kind of diversifying their office atmosphere uh, was really crucial. Um, and we have still lots of parties. <laughs> um, and then we have to leave the space because it's a residential development, but we're looking to kind of try and expand this um, studio environment which has been so crucial to the way we work um, and try and find a bigger space somewhere to share uh, with other people. Um, and then I guess I'll just quickly talk about the project that we were nominated for the Turner Prize for. And again it was a very strange thing. We were approached um, um, by a philanthropist who wanted to improve the area but wasn't really sure what uh, exactly what he was going to do there and gradually in the process of the project we met um, some of the community and we developed uh, different things with them but um, I don't know if you know Liverpool but this part of Liverpool Granby um, has a pretty complex history um, history of Britain but also you know more recently in the 80s there were the race riots and the um, social you know riots um, and it has been kind of branded as um, very negatively um, ever since, and um, kind of Pathfinder <coughs> scheme, which is a kind of a huge um, UK-wide scheme, has also resulted in it being um, basically, uh, you know, forcing managed decline onto the area, and a lot of people had to leave. Um, properties were left empty, and kind of all the valuables were taken out of them, all the fireplaces, all the some of the roofs, um, all that stuff. Uh, but you know, some of the some of the residents stayed, or some new people came in to try and. Um, kind of bring it back to life um, and we picked up on those things we picked up on the kind of grassroots energy that was there um, um, and we developed a kind of master plan for the area um, which would kind of create new economies but also retrofit some of the old Victorian houses um, and bring value back into the area and so in the kind of you know very typical architectural project where very little budget and short timeline we had to make these houses work um, but on the kind of parallel to that we wanted to to use some of our uh, kind of passion for making things um, to bring some of the value back which you can't you know we can't we didn't have a huge architectural budget to make grand uh, schemes but we wanted to kind of bring some of the small details back into the houses um, so we, we set up a workshop at the back of one of the empty ones uh, where we uh, were making new mantelpieces <coughs> using the kind of uh, demolition rubble from the area uh, and then drying them there. <laughs> uh, and this is one of them in the house. Um, and then we were nominated for the Turner Prize, which was, uh, which was pretty much like, you know, someone ringing you, nominating you for the Oscars. We were completely shocked. <laughs> um, and 
obviously, yeah, I can't complain, but it was a bit of a weird um, situation, and we didn't want the project we were working on to become art in the kind of conventional sense because um, we weren't sure what that was going to mean for the area, for the people we were working with, and also kind of the seriousness <coughs> that, um, I don't know, the, the, I don't know, we weren't sure what it was going to do and how it was going to kind of raise the value of the area in a potentially damaging way, but actually realised, no, it's a good thing, um, and that we were going to capitalise on all, all of that attention, literally, by um, selling some of the artefacts that we were making in the area um, at, the, at the exhibition. So, kind of trying to, to gather all the attention and bring it back into the area. Um, so we set up the Granby workshop, which would make more of, uh, of the stuff that we were making already, uh, but then it would be, you know, potentially used not only for the area, but also exported globally to some of these fireplaces. Uh, we made a kind of, um, yeah, autumn-winter collection um, for, the, for the workshop, uh, some of the stuff we made there, um, and then exhibited it at the showroom uh, at the exhibition. Um, so kind of fabrics and furniture and uh, kind of wonky handles and... Um, and then it's kind of being sold online. And I guess, you know, again, um, some of the stuff is, is funny. So these are um, door knobs or <laughs> cabinet handles, which are made by using um, uh, clay uh, moulded in uh, 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 plast casts and then fired in barbecue. Um, so quite, um, I guess you could say, low-tech. Uh, not intentionally. I'm not saying high-tech is bad, but it's just more about our knowledge. You know, it's very limited. We're not very skilled and so um, the kind of p level of amateurism sometimes can be quite good but you know we spend a lot of time doing this it's not like it's a quick thing but um, anyway so um, yeah and I guess uh, maybe some of the projects we like to refer to this is a quote we found recently it's not like we've been looking at it for ages but it, it's quite a nice one <laughs> to sum up some of our ideas thank you <laughs> I'm Tamsin Dillon, the last speaker, and apparently here to try and sum up everything that's been said so far. Um, and I must say it's been really interesting to hear these four stories of, of the, the practitioners we've heard from and how you're somehow sitting in the, um, in the, uh, on the border between occupying this very interesting border between art and architecture. Um, but I thought I might as well start by adding to that list of stories and explain why I might be here um, and, and, and why I'm um, interested in working in the way I do as a curator, um, which essentially means that I do commission artists to make work wherever that <coughs> happens to be. Most curators probably work in some kind of institution, museum, <coughs> Um, gallery, and they're either working with a collection to, to make work, um, to make exhibitions to present to their audiences, or they're working um, in a gallery that doesn't have a collection and, and bringing lots of work to that institution, or commissioning new work. Um, and um, that's all, that, that was something uh, I originally trained as an artist many years ago, and so I kind of had that. Um, desire for, for new work to exist, but I always found it frustrating um, 
to be constrained by the, the by the walls of the gallery, and I was interested in um, how to work with artists beyond the gallery, how to bring art into um, a wide range of different contexts. Um, not necessarily calling it public art, uh, because that's something that we're all very aware of that, that does exist. And um, I don't know if you will have been to this um, exhibition that's currently showing at Somerset House called Out There, which is charting the, the development of public art post Second World War and actually comes up to uh, the current, the, the present day, by looking at a couple of projects um, that I did commission um, at Art on the Underground. Um, but I was, I've, I've never been that comfortable with the term public art. I think what I'm interested in is how to make sure that art and artists, the people that make art, are a central part <coughs> of, of our society in one way or another. So I guess I've basically just taken um, every opportunity that I could find to assist that in happening. Um, in terms of artists and the difference between them and architects, I do think there is actually a, you know, quite a significant difference. But I think um, for myself, obviously, if I'm going to work in a way that takes me out of the gallery into the public realm, there's going to be an inevitable interest developing in architecture. So it may be led towards artists who are, are more knowledgeable about the uh, the, the urban environment beyond the gallery, more interested in creating architectural spaces. Um, and I think artists inform architectural practice, architectures, architects inform artists, and I think that dialogue is an, is an essential dialogue and it has become increasingly essential as practice has diversified in terms of um, uh, the postmodern world that we're, that we're living and working in. Um, it's interesting, particularly thinking about... There you are. Where's she gone? Um, that first project that you mentioned, the, uh, the cinema project, um, which I did see... Uh, it was my first awareness, I think, of Assemble. And it did strike me at the time as being very confusing. Was this a piece of architecture? Was it an artwork? Whatever it was, it seemed to be something new and different, um, unlike anything I'd encountered before. And I think that was that, that's something that I'm interested in thinking about. Um, I think, you know, Pablo really touched on some uh, crucial points about the difference between artists and architecture. I'm not sure quite um, where he was going with the, with the concept of the brief, but I think the brief is, is a crucial difference between artists and architects. The architects have um, work in a practice that they develop. They are um, knowledgeable about architectural competition, about planning law, about um, all those kind of bureaucratic and somewhat tedious processes and structures that mean that um, an architect can build a building that's going to be meet all the, the kind of um, health and safety and other kinds of parameters and, um, and, and meet all of those um, uh, guidelines and um, you know reach, reach that, uh, that, that correct level that, that makes a building usable. 
And maybe what artists do um, in contrast to that um, is make us aware of the um, what happens between gallery between um, the things that architects create, the strange little uh, uh, spaces or I mean, it was interesting here, listening to what Mia was saying about um, areas of the, the boat that she lived in, that, that kind of little kind of things to do with how she saw out of the window or where she slept. All of those kind of funny little um, areas that happen in and around the structures that, that um, architects create. And, and I think maybe what artists... Um, help us do is see the world in um, a new and a different way and um, and that's why I think it's quite interesting to think about this idea of the maverick uh, architect I was really delighted when I uh, picked up this book that, that goes along with the exhibition and, and just quickly flicked through and the first kind of place that I stopped was um, on the architect Charles Holden, who is um, a key architect for London Underground, where I was based for 11 years developing the Art on the Underground programme. And um, he designed the building that London Underground's uh, uh, headquarters was situated in, and he designed many, many of the, the stations, particularly on the Piccadilly line. And he worked with the director of London Underground at the time in the 20s and 30s, Frank Pick, who was a, a visionary man in terms of his approach to developing the brand of London Underground that we still recognise today. Because he worked with the best architects, the best artists, the best graphic designers. And that's why we have um, the tube map um, as it exists now, as, as it was designed then. That's why we have the, the logo that was designed at the beginning of the last century. And that's why we have artists working, even to this very day, um, through Art in the Underground, um, creating works um, in a way that encourage people to use the tube, but also talk to us about what is going on um, in that incredible infrastructure, in that incredible bureaucracy. And, um, and I think... Uh, the idea of the visionary to drive those kind of projects forward um, is, is a crucial one. It's something that came up in another talk that I was involved with, thinking about how to um, realise almost impossible projects um, in the public realm. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think that that's something that allows for all these kinds of projects to happen. I suppose I've skirted around the fact that I've worked for um, 11 years at Art on the Underground. And the reason was I wanted, I, I felt it was um, the last public, uh, almost the last bastion of public space somehow, with an incredible range of architecture and, and places, but where um, people from all echelons of society literally do rub shoulders together, and an incredible range of places that artists could come and put new work into. So we developed um, a wide-ranging uh, programme that allowed people to encounter those, um, those artworks in many, many different ways. I think one of the uh, projects that I feel most um, pleased is still uh, running along is the commissions that you see on the front cover of the tube map. And I think it now, um, we've, the, 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 something like 20, 25 images have been created specially for that space. 
and even though and, and somehow it's, it guides you through the architecture so there is a really um, key um, relationship happening with the architecture of London Underground when you're picking one of those tube maps up and um, I'm very pleased to, to be able to say that Pablo is one of the artists that has made one of those works. Um, as well as the temporary projects, I was able to commission a number of works that are permanently um, part of the underground system. And I'll just quickly mention two of them. One of them um, is at Edgware Road, and you can see the work actually covering the new sub electrical substation outside Edgware Road Station. It's, um, the, it's a huge vitreous enamel artwork by Jackie Poncelet. And she's an artist who's made a number of, work, um, a number of works um, in association with um, buildings, working with architects. But I think this is a crucial point to make about um, how she, has, she works deliberately with an architect who she um, uh, subcontracts. So she, there is a brief that she, that an ar artist may have to work to in in these situations, um, and um, Jackie understands that she doesn't understand the architectural world world well enough to represent herself within it. So I, as the curator and representing London Underground, was liaising with Jackie via her architect in order to talk to the architects of the actual <coughs> building itself. So it's very complicated and layered structure, but it allowed Jackie the freedom to create the work that she needed to be able to create, create within the constraints that were, that were kind of put in place by the architect. And the other project um, that I just wanted to mention is the project that you are starting to see um, incrementally at Tottenham Court Road Station by Daniel Biren. Um, and the, the work on that project uh, began with us contact, contacting Daniel in 2007 and, and now the building is finally being realised and you still haven't seen the very last elements of it. So the other kind of key thing about creating permanent works for an artist is the length of time that it might take to be involved in that building project. Um, my opinion is that um, if, you, if an artist and an architect are going to work together Ideally, they need to work together right from the word go. Um, unfortunately, that's a very rare um, opportunity to happen. So many of the projects that we've done that are permanent, that are part of London Underground, London Underground, are kind of either retrofitted or simply part of the cladding of the building. But, you know, uh, after all, I think if, it, if that's a way for artists to be seen by a wider public who don't necessarily want to go to galleries to see art then I think that's a crucial thing that, that happens. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.